0: Good morning, welcome men's round table. Morning. Only one time in my life will I say this. Are you ready?
1: Yeah, yeah. For what? Damn right!
0: Uh, welcome men's round table, glad you're here. Jeff, do you have a picture of our representative I do. in I Omaha? Do Mr. Creekmore was in the house. There we go. I happened to Omaha. see him on. I happened to see him on TV in a couple of games, so uh, he was there representing Ceasefire and Men's Roundtable in <laughs> Omaha. Mississippi was doing well. You know, I predicted that Ole Miss would win when they came out of Coral Gables, no doubt in my mind. Mississippi State and Ole Miss are playing the Egg Bowl, and one team is. Gone over the season, that's the team that's going to spoil the other team's postseason. Mississippi State wins a national championship, and who among any other school could take the wind out of our sails? But Ole Miss to win it the next year, and people are really excited about. Oh, it's a Mississippi thing. It's a Mississippi thing. Well, when you're in Mississippi, it's not just a Mississippi thing, but it is a Mississippi thing. Guys, I'm glad you're here. We continue in the series of uh, revealing the man behind the mask, True Faced, based on that book. Um, I totally lost my thoughts. Excuse me. Yes, I do remember. We've got some other photographs. Well, we do. We've got an update on Ebenezer Place. This is the foundation that has started for the new building, the pavilion, that will provide space for men to be able to participate in deer camp uh, this coming fall. It's on schedule. We've got some things that, that uh, have got to be scheduled out, but Blair Johnson's doing a great job of heading this up and uh, Chip Hunt is the builder working on the framing. Uh, Phil's just telling us that, that he is on schedule. Uh, They've got to get the electrical and plumbing behind it, but uh, everything looks great for Deer Camp for this fall, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Last Deer Camp I went to this past spring, I commuted back and forth, and that's a a little bit of a trek to do that. So through your faithfulness in giving to Deer Camp, uh, we're providing space for alumni and for new men to participate in Deer Camp in a way like never before. It's an exciting thing. Exciting opportunity. First deer camp, I believe, is September 10th, yeah, 40, maybe.
2: Um, maybe 14th through 16th. 14th, okay. Something like that. Literally, anyway, it, September.
0: It, it, we're, we're all for the summer, but uh, if you have an opportunity, if you have not been to a deer camp, it is a, it is a life-altering experience to be able to sit with a group of men and take what this series is about and put action to it. When you can sit with a group of guys and share openly your struggles, and even if you're unable to share your struggles, listen to other men who share struggles that may be similar to yours, and you find out that you're not the only one suffering through life, finding it hard to pick up one foot and put it in front of the other, it's a place for men to be men. It's a place for men who may not have had an earthly father, figure, or father that fathered them well. It's a place to be fathered. And I'm amazed, seems like every time, that age has nothing to do with who your father may be. Some of the younger guys that are coming through now, I find fathering from them. One in particular is not here this morning. Captain Christie certainly shared some things with me in Deer Camp this past spring that were fathering to me. Young man is the same age as my boys. It's a great opportunity. I hope you can make it. With that, me opens with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering here. We thank you for c for the leadership team, for Phil. Lord, most of all, we thank you for the work you did on the cross for us our sins before we even knew they were sins we repent of those sins Lord we turn our eyes to you mm. we welcome you in our heart may your words be sweet in our ears mm. in your name we pray mm. amen, amen. Thank you.
2: morning gentlemen Excited to be here this morning, beautiful morning. I want to offer you a song. Uh, We continue to um, use the song Amazing Grace, and so I want to offer you uh, another uh, artist uh, singing Amazing Grace, and we want to use Alan Jackson. Alan Jackson's kind of on a a, um, summer tour right now, and um, I think he is just, uh, he's in Biloxi this week. Anybody got tickets to go hear Alan Jackson? Um, Love Alan Jackson. I want to just read just a a few lines of the familiar uh, hymn, uh, Amazing Grace. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, His word my hope secures. He will be my shield in portion B as long as life endures. May you hear the voice of God and may he open our hearts to what he has for us this morning. Alan Jackson.
3: <laughs>
1: Ah. Um. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves.
2: Be on the alert, stand firm in your faith. Act like men, be strong. Words from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Free to be a man, take the mask off and ride the open road of grace. Follow with me as we read our introductory paragraph. Many men try to hide and pretend they are not broken. This only leads to more hiding, pretending and despair and nothing ever changes, and I love that. It's kind of paying my mortgage, you know. Men um, who are continuing to hide. We fear that God is almost never pleased. This study will lead us into the light between two different underlying motives. Our determination to please God, uh, which is not the paradigm that you want to be operating under, now, that may seem strange. That's, that's you know, I thought pleasing God was what it was about. No. The other paradigm is to trust him. Pleasing God leads you into the room of performance. Trusting God leads you into the room of grace. One results in a striving that never feels it has done enough to please him. And the other results in a trust that experiences his full pleasure. Our motives as Jesus followers will either keep us enslaved in our hiding or free us into God's adventure for our lives. Let's discover the open road of grace together right on. So this morning, um, we are looking at life behind the mask. What, what does it look like? And this is part one. And uh, next week, we'll we'll look at uh, the second part of this. But it's like, wh- what does life really look like? Um, if I'm living behind the mask, if I am afraid to show who I really am, or if I don't even know who I am. Um, and that's part of the beauty of, um, of using this book, and again, um, True Faced, I, I hope everybody will read this while we're going through this this summer. Make, make it your beach read, um, you know, this summer. And again, the, um, uh, the new updated uh, version and title is The Cure. Um, but this is the old version, the original version, True Faced. So tr- strongly encourage you to read this. Bill Thrall, Bruce McNichol, and John Lynch. So let's go to work. Um, grab your pen. And um, as you're grabbing your pen, and, and we're going to look at these three questions, pull up Galatians 5.1, Jeff, if you would. This is kind of our um, theme uh, passage, uh, this idea of freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, Christ has set us free to live a free life. Uh, It's such an offer um, that we are really uh, given a life um, that is absent from inhibitions and prohibitions relative to love. Uh, So take your stand. Uh, We might even say, so take off your mask. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. The only one that I really want uh, to hear uh, applause from um, is applause from the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Uh, I live as best I know how to an audience of one. That's what it means uh, to be free. Um, I don't really care what you think about me um, as long as I'm in the thoughts um, of Jesus. And I've had to learn that. And and I've struggled with that, um, for many years because, you know, I grew up being a people pleaser. I was sitting out, uh, here when I first got here and I watched the little gal who brought the, um, Chick-fil-A biscuits to us this morning. And I was watching her and, uh, she's evidently new and, uh, she's a sweetheart. I'm sure a little, a little redhead. And she parked four places right down here rather than like the normal uh, Chick fil A guy would pull right up in front of the door. And I'm thinking, you now there's a people pleaser, there's a rule follower. Uh, you know, uh, most of us would try to get as close to the door as we could. Uh, and half of us park in the handicapped spot now at the grocery store. But she, she, she parked four spots down here and loaded up her little uh, cart and brought the, bis- uh, the biscuits in, the uh, um, chicken biscuits. And it's like, you know, sometimes you can spot a rule follower. At least that's the way I looked at it, you know. And um, that's not what God's given to us in freedom, not to be a rule follower. So I'm going to offer you three questions, and let's do a little self-assessment this morning. Uh, three questions to self-assess and to journal. So I want you to respond to this with pen on paper. Question number one, would others who know you say you are judgmental? Because I know, the reason I phrased that question, because I know you would never call yourself judgmental. All right? Do you tend to be hard on yourself or others? And one of the indicators, again, of um, being enslaved uh, to pleasing somebody else is being judgmental. Now, other words that we use uh, in being judgmental is rigidity. I've told you this story before, but I did an internship at a mental hospital in Knoxville, uh, which is called Lion's View many years ago. And um, I was an undergrad at the University of Tennessee and been doing this internship. And of course, you know, I, I just got to observe everything. I, I didn't know enough to help anybody and got to know the patients on the adolescent ward. And uh, anybody that was uh, between the ages of 14 to 35 was on the adolescent ward. Now, that's some old adolescence right there now. Uh, and it was one of the scariest things I'd ever seen. It was like uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest without the Indian. Uh, you know, it was, it was scary. It's like, I don't, really get it. I don't know if I want to get into this or not. You know, this is some sick people. But I had access to the files of everybody, and that was part of uh, being an intern. And there was one common description that was true of everybody there. i I was i was like shocked every time i'd read a file every time i'd read a file every time i'd read a file this phrase was true of every file that i read and it was religious rigidity judgmentalness religious rigidity and marshall knows this will make you crazy it's like Shoulds and oughts, shoulds and oughts, shoulds and oughts, shoulds and oughts, shoulds and oughts. You're not doing it right. You're doing it wrong. Shoulds and oughts will make you crazy. Are you like that? Am I judgmental? I hope not. If you are, um, repent. Repent. Question number two, do you tend to lose your objectivity in a crisis? Are you more likely to become angry or reactive under stress? Wow. So think about it for a minute, you know. When there's chaos at your house, do you just create more chaos? You start yelling, you're angry. Uh, you get mad rather than calming down and bringing order to it. You just create more chaos. You, you're enslaved. You're enslaved. Um, it's like you blame and you criticize. Um I used to be a lot more of a blamer than I am now. I'm certainly not completely healed from my blaming and criticism. But you know what I used to call blame and criticism? I used to call it depression. So, so I had kind of a, a mental health issue, Marshall, way of, of, of uh, uh, covering over my own sinfulness of blaming and criticizing everybody else. And I would go underground. I would go more over, or uh, covert rather than over. And I would get depressed. But really, I was just mad. You know, I'm depressed. And it was so cool because when I would get depressed, I could—I was kind of like a way of saying time out. And I—I I could just remove myself from the situation. I'm—I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm, I'm depressed, and I would just escape. You know, and I might go just watch another football game or a basketball game or whatever it would be, but it was kind of cool. You know, depression was working for me. And then I was, and then I was with a counselor and some of these counselors can get up in your uh, grill, you know, and just make you mad. And this counselor that I was sitting with said, uh, Phil, how does depression work for you? What's the benefit of you getting depressed? Boy, did that make me mad. What do you mean? I'm depressed. Don't you feel sorry for me? And uh when I when I came to the realization that I was using depression as kind of a way to suck my thumb and just be a uh, a, a grown thumb sucker, then I got uh healthy enough and angry enough in the right way to quit blaming and criticizing things around me through depression, and start getting more adult life. Help me to grow up. Blame and criticize. Third question. In your family, relationships, church, or work, is the penalty for disclosing what is true about you the same as getting caught? If so, how is that thwarting your character development? Now, what, the, what, what I'm asking there is, are you open and vulnerable and transparent and you offer yourself, you know, like you do in AA? Hello, my name is Phil, and I'm an alcoholic. And what do all the drunks say at the AA meeting? Welcome. Exactly. Welcome, Phil. Me too. You know, welcome. Glad you're here. But oftentimes what we do is we get found out and then we call that openness. Well, 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 maybe one time I did that, you know, and it, and it's like, no, character uh, development is really not getting found out. And then therefore I, I tell my story. But character development is going to a person and saying, look, um, I don't want to hide anymore. I'm going to take my mask off. And even what you've seen me do is worse than even what you know. Um, I'm a broken man. Um, I'm sorry for how my brokenness has hurt you. Will you forgive me? Power of forgiveness, power of forgiveness, powerful. So let's dig in. <clears throat> Take the mask off. Take the mask off. So I want to suggest to you, as we begin uh, this morning, that I want you to, uh, to continue to be in a in a kind of a modality of in a mindset of um, self-assessment and this idea <clears throat> of, of beginning to assess where we are what's going on inside is evidence of um, sin in our lives so uh, our, our own brokenness that we need to deal with and and what goes on on, on the inside is shame and my my work with men over many years is most of us as men we don't understand even when we are full of shame but but an indicator that you're dealing with shame is the fear that somebody's going to find out what's going on in secret in your life um or somehow being uh found out um for that which you're trying to keep secret. Secrets uh, kill any kind of intimacy. And when you're a secret keeper, I would say that's probably a pretty good indication that, that you are suffering from the emotional cancer of shame. Because shame is the emotional cancer that comes from our own brokenness and our failure. Guilt you know, tells us that we have done wrong. And shame just amps up the guilt and says, You are wrong. You are bad. Dealing with shame. And, and the only way that I know uh, to deal with shame is to find a place of grace and to share that which you're afraid to be found out on and allow another person to extend grace to you. And that swallows up the shame. I don't believe you can pray your way through uh shame. I don't believe that you can just uh deal with shame unless it's in a relationship. And when I see Jesus through the eyes of my friend Jeff or Ricky or somebody else and I've shared that which I'm ashamed of and I look into their eyes and they say me too. Only worser. Worser. That that's the way you deal with shame. It's, it's got to be a relational paradigm. And then, and then, of course, what's on the inside is blame or criticism. Are you, are you dealing with being a blamer? I mean, the reason you can't resolve conflict uh, at your house with your wife or even a good friend is it's always somebody else's fault. And, and, and I say this regularly in my counseling office. There's always two shovels in the hole, always two shovels in the hole. There's always a part that you have. And so the, uh, the, the way that you, we draw it up on the blackboard to resolve conflict is own your part. But you know, what I wanna do, is I just wanna point the finger at the other person, you know, cause they hurt me. But it's like, you know, what is my part in that? And then if I share my part, then I pray like crazy that they will reciprocate and they'll say, well, you know, thanks for sharing your part. My part's this. Now, again, it doesn't always work that way. You know, it doesn't always work that way. But you've got to do your part. Stop the blaming. And then, of course, what are you really afraid of? You wear the mask because you live in fear. and. What's the opposite of love? It's fear. It's not hate. The opposite of love is not hate relationally. Now, semantically, yeah, I get it, love and hate, but, but what kills relationships is fear. And when you have a, a fear going on in a relationship, then, then there's a governor on that relationship. It, it's only going to go so high, it's a, there's a ceiling there. So we've got to deal with our fear. What are you really afraid of, and then living on the river, you know denial living on the river, you know it's like no, it's not me, it's not me, it's like, man, you know, I'm unwilling uh to be open, and um you know scripture's really clear um. Pride cometh before the fall and God gives grace to whom? To the humble, to the humble. I'm willing to own my part, bow the knee, get out of denial. And then that great energy that God has given us for healing and health that we abuse as men and it's anger. Angry men and lonely wives. Somebody needs to write that book. Ron, you need to write that book. You know, angry men and lonely wives. You know, I'm not mad. I'm frustrated. As uh, one guy stood up and, and hovered over me, as as big as I am, and I'll never forget that he stood up in my office and he said. Uh, I, I had I had suggested to him that he might be a little angry and he stood up and, and I said, dude, you are so angry. And he looked at me and he says, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. Okay. You know, Mr. Synonym here. <laughs> okay. You know, and I started to pull out my th- uh, th- uh, thesaurus and, and tell him, you know, there's about a hundred other words, you know, that could be used there, but it really comes back to anger, you know? and then uh, uh it's like guys guys i want to show you um a clip of of a man uh that is such a model of jesus from our from history and I, and we we're, we're using william wilberforce uh as kind of our jesus case study you know all through redemptive history god gives us models in you know in scripture even the apostle paul said you know imitate me, imitate me. Um, And it's like God gives us men who have gotten free from this inside um, enslavement. And they've begun to work out uh, their salvation in a beautiful way. William Wilberforce, watch this.
3: By the late 1700s, British slavers were capturing as many as 50,000 Africans each year and taking them to the Americas. So how did this enslavement of Africans come to an end? In the United States, it would take a civil war. In the British Empire, it would take a movement that included a man named William Wilberforce. While slavers were seeking slaves in Africa in the late 1700s, William Wilberforce was living in luxury in his family's estates in London and Wimbledon. Then he spent a few years gambling and dining with friends on the finest foods at college in Cambridge. Years earlier, he'd been fascinated by a young preacher named George Whitfield, but now all he wanted was a seat in the British Parliament. In 1780, when he was only 21 years old, Wilberforce got his position in Parliament. During his early years of service, William, in his own words, did nothing to any purpose. My own distinction was my darling object. Then in 1785, while on a trip across Europe, the emptiness of William's plush life began to gnaw at his soul. Finally, in the spring of 1786, following months of dark depression, William Wilberforce trusted Jesus Christ alone to transform his troubled soul. As a new believer, he thought about abandoning his political position, But John Newton, the ex-slave trader who had penned the hymn Amazing Grace, urged Wilberforce to use his parliamentary position for the glory of God. A few months later, Wilberforce received a letter urging him to work to end British slave trafficking, and he began to turn his efforts toward this goal. Now, despite his personal charm, Wilberforce was a clumsy political strategist at times. He and his friend Thomas Clarkson introduced legislation to limit the slave trade in 1789, 1791, 1792, 93, 97, 98, 99, 1804, and 1805, only to be defeated every time. Opposition to Wilberforce became so fierce that one friend feared he would be barbecued by African merchants and eaten by Guinea captains. Finally, in 1807, the efforts of Wilberforce and Clarkson combined with the news of a slave uprising on an island known as Haiti to turn the tide. Parliament outlawed the slave trade in the British Empire. The circle around Wilberforce then turned their efforts toward abolishing slavery itself. Poor health forced Wilberforce to resign from Parliament, but Clarkson and others continued this campaign. In July of 1833, three days before William Wilberforce died, it became clear that they had the votes they needed to end slavery in the British Empire. The next month, the House of Lords passed the Slavery Abolition Act. Thirty years later, slaves were emancipated in the United States as well. Christians rightly celebrate the impact of faith on the abolition of African slavery, but it's important never to forget that slavery didn't go away in the 19th century. In fact, in the opening decades of the 21st century, at least 12 million human beings live in slavery. Each year, more than a half million men, women, and children are transported as slaves across international borders. Seventy percent are female, half are minors. May God raise up a new generation of men and women like William Wilberforce to bring an end to slavery in this century as well.
2: Me, as, as we're going through this series and using William Wilberforce as kind of our Jesus model in um, real life is just what's happened uh, in our country with Roe versus Wade. And um, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's something uh, that we need to celebrate um, and, and be humble um, about. Um, William Wilberforce worked for uh, over 40 years uh, to see slavery end in England. And uh, if, if, if William Wilberforce had never stood up, um, then there would not be the kind of freedom uh, uh, that we have uh, in this country. And, you know, the long battle on Roe versus Wade uh, to come to an end is a William Wilberforce-like journey. And so don't give up uh, on, on that which you are working uh, for in your own personal life to be free from sins that have uh, entangled you or shame, brought shame to your life or to your family. And continuing to pray and, and care for those in your family that need to find the kind of freedom that Jesus offers. It can be a long, hard journey. Don't give up the fight. So the effects of living behind the mask are sixfold. And this is where, again, I want you to continue to evaluate uh, your own life. I mean, when, when we don't deal with the effects of sin in our life, the shame, blame, fear, denial, Uh, in anger, what starts to happen that you start seeing on the outside is judgmentalness, blame and criticism, hiding, cut off from love, a loss of direction, and control. Um, Consider that. Even sit with your um, close friends in your small group Talk about these five inside experiences. Is that what you live with every day? and then have them as friends or your uh, your your wife evaluate you know, on the outside. Um, number one, am I judgmental? Am I harsh? Am I rigid? Do I bring judgment? Into our home. I grew up in a, in a little country church in East Tennessee, um, and I'm grateful uh, for that little country church. I learned the gospel, um, learned, I had a, you know, uh, mamas and daddies that were teaching Sunday school and cared for me. In a lot of ways, and gave me a great foundation. But there was a lot of legalism and judgmentalness in that little country church as well. Um, and, And it did harm. We become highly sensitive to our own sin and judge the sin of others when we're not free. I want you to turn over to Luke, chapter 18, and Jesus puts his finger on this kind of rigidity and judgmentalness when he confronts a bunch of religious leaders. Luke chapter 18. Verse 9. He told his next story uh, to some who were complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and looked down their noses at the common people. Again, we would just simply call that judgmentalness. You know, when you start putting yourself in a superior grandiose position and you say to yourself or to them, I would never do that. Uh, that is judgmentalness. Now, where I see it oftentimes in my counseling office is when a couple is uh, uh, working with infidelity, there's been an affair, and the one who's committed the affair, of course, uh, has nothing uh, to bring to the table. Uh, you know, they had to turn their guns in, so to speak, and there's nothing there. And rather than there being a mutuality, that the one who is the victim of the affair saying, you know, this is hard. We're going to work through this. Uh, What they often do is when the uh, perpetrator uh, is uh, having a hard time dealing with his or her own guilt and shame, then the one who is the victim of the affair takes a grandiose position. And dude, when that happens, Game's over. You ain't doing nothing in my office but paying my mortgage. At that point, it's it's like the RPMs are cranked up, but the wheels are spinning in the mud. A lot of a lot of energy in that room, and what that is called again is judgmentalness or grandiose uh, grandiosity. And the person up here says, you know, I would never do that. And then this person just keeps sinking lower and lower. This person needs to be held accountable, no doubt about it, but you know, this person is just as bad as this person and that's hard. And I've never said that um, to that person because I don't, I don't want that anger attacking me at that point. I'm not completely stupid, you know, but I'm thinking that, you know, but it's like ground is level at the cross, is it not? And so Jesus goes on. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax man. And the Pharisee um, posed and prayed like this. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and crooks and adulterers, or heaven forbid, like this tax man. I fast twice a week and I tithe on my income. Wow, that, that would be a peach of a guy to take fish in, wouldn't he? <laughs> Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, and he said, God, give mercy, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus commented, this taxman, not the other, went home right away with God, uh, went home made right with God. If you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you content, if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. Now, in your study Bible, it reads like this If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. I call it the Nancy Kerrigan thing. You know, God will take a, 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 a pipe and hit you right over the knees.
1: <laughs> what is this have to happen?
2: It's a Nancy Kerrigan thing. That's why. God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. So guys, I'm telling you, one of the manifestations of you living behind the mask um, is when you're judgmental. You're rigid. Um, you look down on people. Um, and one of the ways it often shows up is in our fathering in our homes. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. And this is this is a passage that's troubling, um, and it and it makes me uh, pause when I when I read this, um, and I think about fathers. Deuteronomy five verses eight through ten says this: No other gods. Uh, verse seven. I'm sorry. No other gods. Only me. No carved gods of any size, shape, or form of anything, whatever, whether of things that fly or walk or swim. Don't bow down to them and don't serve them because I am God, your God, and I'm a most jealous God. I hold parents responsible for any sins they pass on to their children, to the third and yes, even to the fourth generation, but I'm lovingly loyal to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Guys, uh, I have seen generational strongholds uh, because fathers refuse to deal with their own sin. And I, and I'm telling you, if you don't take the mask off, come clean with your own sin, you will pass it on, pass it on to your, um, sons and daughters, to your grandchildren. And it's like, break that stronghold, come clean. Um, read you something out of, um, again, the true Facebook. It's so sad to me. And it's all about this judgmentalness and this rigidity. Years of directing Christian summer high school camps gave Bruce and Bill an incredible desire to discover how to break the patterns of generational dysfunction they saw being played out over and over again in the lives of kids. They discovered that the teenagers with the greatest scars were not the unchurched kids, but those who came from Christian homes with intense religious control. These kids lived daily without expressed love and it scarred their souls. They blamed the God of their parents and were unable to trust others. They had no solution for the hopelessness in their hearts. The very God who alone had answers for them was, in their minds, no answer at all. That's what judgmentalness, rigidity, especially from fathers and mothers who are well-intentioned. but Where's the grace? Where's the welcome? You know, those of us who are fathers, uh, grandfathers, welcome, welcome your kids. There's no, no judgment at the cross. This idea then, secondly, of of blame and criticism. Um, Assess yourself. Do you tend to take responsibility um, for what's going on around you? Or um, would people say about you, um, that it's always somebody else's fault. Haven't you heard that said about people? I've heard that said in my counseling office many times. You know, it's never her fault. It's never his fault. It's always about blame. And, and that that's an, that's an effect of just not dealing uh, with your own brokenness. Rather than me owning my brokenness, I just project it on to somebody else. So so in a crisis, rather than taking responsibility for what I did that brought this crisis about, it it may sound something like this. I become unable to read and evaluate the behavior, contributions, motives, attitudes of others around me in a healthy way. I can only read them in terms of their effect on me. Everything revolves around me. I, I, I begin to demand loyalty from those over whom I have authority at the expense of their losing a voice. I don't give other people the chance. I manipulate circumstances to my advantage. I blame others with a condemnation and irritation that is distorted by subjectivity. I create an environment dependent on the moods I manifest. I cause those around me to function in fear and distrust. I force everyone around me to grapple with two issues. How to resolve the original issue and how to handle me. You could just sum all that up with one word: narcissism. a self-absorbed person that it's never their fault. In my book uh, that we use at Deer Camp, we call that guy a bull, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. It's all about him and then and then and then finally, Wrapping it up is that the outward exp- uh, experience, when you're not dealing with your own sin and you're hiding behind the mask, is just the experience of hiding. You're not willing to be transparent. It it is a beautiful thing to see a group of men at Ebenezer Place uh, begin to share openly. Uh, Tears come easily. Uh, Love and grace expressed abundantly. It is water into wine. Um, I love it. Can't wait till September uh, where the masks come off. You know, I think we need to have a dumpster uh, put in uh, up at Ebenezer Place. And uh, we're just going to call it the mask dump. And it's where you leave your mask. I want to close this morning with Ephesians chapter two. Jeff, pull that up, and I'll just read it off the screen. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten. Saving is always is all His idea and all His work and all His work. It's nothing. It's not your performance. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we had done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates, and this is what I want you to, uh, to, to hear as you leave this morning, He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Saved by grace for good works. Nobody in this room will probably be uh, given uh, the uh, mission of being the next William Wilberforce but we've all been given an assignment even today to be loved by God and to express love to every person that we come in contact with. May they smell Jesus on you and me today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful um, that you have given us your word. Help us to understand what it means to live behind the mask and then take that mask off and receive your grace and be free, uh, free to love and free to be loved. Thank you for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.